Shafiq Abdusabar, and today is Wednesday, October 19th, 2016. This is Urban Talk Radio, where you will hear conversation, information, inspiration, motivation from the American urban perspective. It's been a while since we've been on the air for about three weeks, and we've been trying to reorganize a little bit. A lot of things happening in the news, a lot of things happening in the country. Very, very difficult to keep up. About a year ago now, Urban Talk Radio has been on, and when we created this show, tried to keep a very broad perspective, addressing issues, everything from what people would say the good things in society that makes people happy, down to the things that other people may not want to talk about, particularly that of race and diversity and culture, and we all know that at the dinner table, especially around Thanksgiving, says three things you don't talk about, race, religion, in politics. Well, those are actually the three things that we talk about here on Urban Talk Radio. And um, in the last couple of weeks, a lot going on in the news. We've had uh, roughly around three controversial police shootings. One was in Tusla. The other one was in Charlotte. And then we had one in California. Also now, a lot of data, a lot of information is coming out, international uh I think it's the International Conference of Association of Police Chiefs have just released a new document addressing use of force. Uh, FBI Director James Comey also just released a updated statement a couple of weeks ago. I, I think it was just this past week saying that what America appears to see, which looks like a rash of shootings of unarmed black men, is actually not. That's actually not the case. Um, Perf has released a report early this year. There are 30, 30 strategic approaches to dealing with de-escalation around the issue of use of force. And then now that is being debated by, appear to be the uh, police chiefs associations up with some debate about that. So there's a lot going on, people trying to scramble, really, I think, trying to find a solution, what to do in the reorganizing of policing. So today on the phone, I have in Ohio, Dr. Ronnie Dunn. He's been on the show before. He is a Ph.D. Uh, professor at Ohio, in Ohio. He is also the author of Racial Profiling Causes and Consequences. And today, I'd like to welcome him back to the show. Thank you. I know you have a tough schedule, and I really appreciate you coming on the show today and you know, giving us, giving us your professional insight on things. How you doing? Good morning. Well, thank you for having me back, uh, So you've been watching a lot what's going on, and today I wanted the show to be a little 
a little a little I guess you would say a little looser than the past because you've been on. I mean, you're you're expert and professional certainly in your field. You know, what has been your take on what you've kind of absorbed? I don't I don't think we've talked on um, the air probably for about maybe three four months. Has a lot going on. I mean, I I just want to address first of all, maybe if you would give us your insight on. Did you hear the press statement from FBI Director James Comey? Uh, no, actually, I, I did not hear his uh, latest statement. I know, uh, I think it was last year. Initially, he had uh, made some statements that I thought were really uh, relevant in uh, placing these, this current um issues around police violence with blacks in particular in its proper historical context when he uh, made reference to the, the roots, the historical roots of the relationship between blacks and the police. But subsequent to that, I know he has made statements about uh, the uh, rash of shootings also and the protests leading to uh, de-policing and, and making police uh, reluctant and hesitant to uh, pro, pro, to police. Um, so that, that was a little uh, disconcerting, but I have not heard his latest uh, statement. Yeah, so apparently, I'll just go off of some of the, um, the news reports, as FBI Director James Comey told a gathering of police chiefs who think there's an epidemic of police shootings of black people aren't well informed. He touched on the theme he has pursued. For, he has pursued for more than a year, trying to get police to embrace the need to report statistics on officer involved shootings. Better numbers, Coney argues would help the nation understand whether there is a real epidemic of police killings of black men or if, the advent of viral videos shared in social media are giving the impression that they are more lethal confrontations between police and minorities. I mean, what, what is your feeling about that? Because I've, uh, well, I've again, seen the I'm videos. Back by, I guess, the inconsistency of the director's comments. And, and I think they don't do anything to really uh, promote um, the, the type of discussions or climate that we need to address these these very uh, relevant and, and uh, persistent issues. Actually, I'm wondering what the basis of his statements are, because as we know, the, the federal government does not have uh, robust, comprehensive data on police-involved uh, deadly use of force uh, incidents, and actually there are some uh, newspaper outlets, the Washington Post, as well as some citizen-driven crowdsourcing databases that are actually more re comprehensive and reliable at this point than that collected by the uh, FBI. So, uh, once again, I question what is the basis for his comments. Now, there's also a new, another article, another article backed up behind that uh, that just came out this last couple of days. I'm looking at October 17th, where it talks about, uh, this is the New York Times, talks about official apologies for police role 
and Mistrust by Minorities, and this was put out by uh, Terrence M. Cunningham, who leads the International Association of Police Chiefs. This was also appears that took place at the small conference in San Diego, and they basically it says that law enforcement uh, law enforcement must begin to acknowledge and apologize for their for the actions of the past and the role that our profession has played in society's historic mistreatment of communities of color. Now, this represents uh, the International Association of Police Chiefs, from what I understand, represents six, they have 16,000 members worldwide. This is worldwide they have, um, and it was formed in 1893. So, you know, what is your, I mean, I have my opinion on it. I haven't even had a chance to even digest it all, (laughs) but I mean, what's your, what's your feeling on this? So now, so now, Police chiefs from all around the world and uh, worldwide have decided that they're going to make an apology about the way policing has been done in the United States for minorities. Yes, well, I I think that's a start. Obviously, the acknowledgement, you have to acknowledge uh, the historical role that the police have played in the uh, oppression uh, of uh, people of color and blacks in particular. And once again, as I stated earlier, uh, that relationship goes all the way back to slavery and uh, actually to the colonial period and the slave patrols, which were the forerunner of the modern police departments. And then if you consider that blacks were still primarily uh located in the south the a majority of blacks did not live in the north until after the sec during the second wave of the great black migration in the 1950s prior to that the majority of the black population still resided in the south so thus and we know the role that the police played in uh during the jim crow era and uh oppressing blacks and the violence and uh lynching uh, police have been implicated in more than 6,000 lynchings of blacks from the uh, period of Jim Crow at the end of uh, Reconstruction up to through the 1960s. So that history has to be acknowledged, and that's just a start. What's an apology without some type of uh, uh, restitution, if you will? So it is a start, and that's what I argue director needs to be consistent in his messaging rather than giving conflicting and contradictory statements. If you're just joining the show this morning, you are listening to Urban Talk Radio 103.5. FM WNHHLP. Urban Talk Radio is also being simulcast on New Orleans Talk Radio Network, NOTN, an interactive media website that features 24 hour radio, video streams, article blogs, and information on social living and current news. You can also stream our show today on newhavenindependent.org, and you can join this conversation on Facebook at Bowl Minds and Twitter at Bowl Minds. Today's guests 
over the phone in Ohio, I have Dr. Ronnie Dunn. He is the author of Race Profiling and Causes and Consequences. And we're talking about race and policing this morning. And, you know, you just can't get around this conversation. It is it is inescapable at this point in our country having this conversation. Um, there's a new video or a new documentary just came out. I actually watched it the other night. Uh, documentary is produced. It's on Netflix. It's, it's pretty pretty popular right now, and it's called uh, the 13th, the 13th, and it refers to the 13th Amendment. It's modern day slavery, and it's an incendiary document or incendiary docu- documentary produced by Ava. Looks like Ava Duvernay. And um, have you had a chance to to actually watch this? Uh, yes, I have. Yes, I have. I watched it uh, last week myself. It is a very powerful and uh, compelling uh, documentary. And actually, uh, it it kind of parallels, it does parallel very closely uh, a class that I teach. I teach African-American images and film at Cleveland State University, and that class deals with the stereotypes of blacks in film um, history and in the media throughout American film history, and we began with Birth of a Nation. And in her film, in her documentary, she clearly clearly shows the continuum um, of how those stereotypes have been used to criminalize African Americans, and that is. Uh, what I do as well, and I go all the way from Birth of a Nation, which was released in 1915, up to the present. The last film we, we view is uh, um, uh, the Oscar Grant. I'm sorry, it's, it's, I'm blanking. Uh, oh, Fruitvale State. Yes, yes, yes. Fruitvale. Uh, that was heart-wrenching. I saw saw that with my my son. uh, It it was a very uh, concise and powerful, well-done documentary. You know what what I find is, and I saw A Birth of a Nation, I think, last week, the um, Nat Turner, uh, it's like a a documentary movie, uh, a theatrical movie. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I come from an era, the Spike Lee era, when I actually got accepted into Morehouse College back in 1985, Scott uh, Spike Lee was was there then, about to graduate, I believe. And so I was going in as yeah. he was coming out. I, d- I decided not to go to Morehouse. I went to another college in mm-hmm. Georgia. But mm-hmm. it was almost like the age of the of the black, uh, theatrical, black, uh, you know, black writers, black movie writers. I was a art major myself for yeah. a period of time. And I've always remembered this, this one thing. It said, you know, art in movies, art in movies is a, it's an exaggeration of the truth. That's the, that's where the drama comes. You know, now, now when people really want drama, they actually watch sci-fi. <laughs> right. And then when they want, uh, kind of like the word drama in terms of, you know, somebody being a drama queen or a drama king, they watch, uh, you know, action film, but drama in itself, the concept or reality TV, or reality TV yes, the or real, reality. the real drama. 
But in essence, drama, you know, the art of drama, you would you would you would watch a movie, a Godfather, you know, or of, of some some type of movie like that, and you would be you would be compelled. So when you see these, yeah. a movie like Thirteen, a documentary, and then you go see a a movie like uh, you know Birth of a Nation. It, it just really holds you in a spot for a second, you know, and unlike, oh, a, you know, unlike a sci-fi movie, you, you, you can say, Oh, that wasn't a real gun. That was a, a laser that was, they're in space. We're never going to space. But when you walk away from birth of a nation, mm-hmm. that connects some dots for you. And when you watch a show, oh, yeah. um, a documentary like 13, you know, where they talk about uh, corporations have reaped the profits, off of you know the privatization of prisons labor and you know prisoners get paid 12 cents an hour to do work for victoria's secrets and walmart and you're like wow Mm -hmm. so you know like what's that about that's like slaves picking cotton again because that's really what a lot of the um when you know if you're really up on your history of america the civil war certainly was not about freeing slaves the, 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 no, the Civil War no, was about no. was about money, and it was about taxes. It was about power in the Senate and power in the federal government by these, you know, the, the South versus the North. And it really just came down to whoever was paying less cents on a dollar to produce labor to produce a product would have much more money to, um, you know, either funnel back to candidates at, at the federal level in order to sway their votes. I mean, that's really what it was about. It was about lobbying, and you know, when you kind of like well, narrow it down. Well, uh, yeah. If I might, though, uh, Brother Safiq, I, I, I would submit that while it the uh, slavery was a, the freeing of the slaves was a byproduct of Lincoln's efforts to save the Union. That was the primary uh, motive behind. The Civil War. So those other factors that you mentioned definitely were variable, but I, I think his main focus was saving the Union. Now, the issue of slavery was the divisive issue. That was prior to the war. Now, after the war, historians, particularly Confederate um, uh, historians have, or Southern historians, have kind of raised all of those other arguments as the cause of the war to diminish the fact that it was about this institution of slavery, this inhumane practice, and to to promote this uh, noble cause narrative. Right, but I guess... The original film, Birth of a Nation, grew out of as a result. So from my studies, what I found also is that slavery actually did not begin in the South. It actually began in the North. That it was actually up in the North. Slavery had been pra- mm-hmm. practiced for approximately... In Jamestown, yes. Right. That that in the North, slavery had actually been practiced for roughly around 40 years, 40 solid years, before it actually became an industry in the South. And, in fact, that the abolitionists who, uh, from the North... The abolitionists were actually the early pioneer slave owners and slave traders, and they had decided to kind of move on. Like, hey, we don't need to, we don't need to get involved in slave trading anymore. We're actually building the ships now that actually go pick up the slaves. Where we own the rum factories now that produce the rum 
that these uh, slave ship owners actually are using for money to trade for the slaves in the Caribbean. They were making the blankets. They were making the, they had the food depots. And in fact, um, from those families, from those individuals and those individuals' families is where the wealth was amassed for the North that you now see in uh, some of the large insurance firms. And that's why, you know, for instance, in Connecticut alone, that's why there are so many billionaires in Connecticut, because the wealth of those billionaires actually derived from the early on abolitionists who were actually the pioneers of the slaves, slave traders. What's your feeling about that? Okay, well, I, I, I'm not familiar with that, that particular literature that you're referencing, so um, I, I guess we might have to have that discussion at some other point. Yeah. I mean, it's just, a, you know, it's just a really, a, 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 as, a, as I listened to and watched this 13th, and then um, I also actually had a chance to um, preview a new movie coming out from um, Ferguson. It's called, um, mm-hmm. it's called don't let, uh, do not resist. And it actually has some very interesting things. I think when you see it, you're going to go crazy watching it. You're going to love it <laughs> because it actually talked about dealing with these bear cats and the whole system of being able to acquire military decommissioned military equipment into the police departments, you know, and and using them as a police department is actually what was really interesting, which, which I'll just share this and I'll be interested to hear your opinion is apparently what they call these MRAPs, these MRAPs, which is these, they're, they're, they're the military uh, Humvee type weapon knives or they're Mm -hmm. de-weaponized military vehicles. We're, we're widely known from being familiar with them at the Ferguson rallies that they're apparently there's an order for them not to be used in the instance of riots. So they're not supposed to be used for riot control, <laughs> but they're used for riot control. <laughs> so, I mean, just what, what is just your, your, your take on, it? I mean, you, you're an expert in racial profiling. We are trying to figure out how to make policing more America friendly. And we're trying to figure out how Mm -hmm. to make policing more pliable in particularly the African-American community around black men. And there's a reoccurring theme in our history of America when it comes to police and black men, um, governmental authority that have that level of power, whether we call them, you know, bondsmen, sheriffs, uh, all the way down, watchmen, and black men. You know, there's mm-hmm. an issue that we have as a country, it appears, when it comes to dealing with black men, whether it's job hiring, job promotion, uh, you know, housing. How do we move past can we move past this are we just now stuck is it is this the bright side of america for us now or uh well that's a that's a very um interesting question to see Uh, this issue of race we've been wrestling with 
since the colonial time, since the first Africans were brought to the colonies or since Jamestown. Um, during, I made reference earlier to the great black migration that were blacks attempts to free, uh, to flee the uh, brutal, harsh, inhumane conditions of Jim Crow in the South seeking the promised land. So they migrated to the North, to cities such as New Haven, to uh, New York or Cleveland, for example. And uh, unfortunately, we then found uh, racism and, and were segregated there in, in the promised land, in the urban North, uh, where Martin referred to an American dream, uh, Malcolm referred to it as a nightmare. And so this has just been the persistent challenge uh, to America to address this issue of race in particular when it comes to the black community because we have not been able to uh, assimilate into the uh, mainstream American society or the, 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 the white dominant culture in the way that other ethnic, uh, white ethnic groups have, immigrant groups have, the Italian, the Irish, for example. So when it came to blacks, the assimilation stopped. Uh, it, we, we could only go so far as far as assimilation. Why, why is that, though? Because there, everybody has their reason or their opinion why. Some people say, well, you know, blacks well, are lazy back, and they didn't want to. At the root of it is it's the, it's the ideology of white supremacy. That's what's at the heart of it. Um, I, I mean, and that's, uh, you know, that, that permeated Western, the Western world, this, mm. uh, you know, white superiority, black inferiority. So we had this racialized hierarchy with whites at the, the, the top of the pole of the continuum and blacks at the bottom and other racial groups in between. So, right, but how do um, I, but how do we, what, but here's, here's my thing, doctor, how do, how do we, how do black people particularly, uh, you know, well-educated black people like yourself who, you know, you consult with the governor there, you, you're, you're a professor, you're an author, you know, you're a public speaker. How do how do we have or frame this conversation so that police, white officers, or professionals, white men or white women, people in the community, if we use the term white, you know, will be able to understand it and not get upset and say, well, oh, here you go with this racial stuff. Here you go with white supremacy. Because I'm a black, I'll be honest with you, I'm a black man. And even as a black man, when I hear white supremacy, it like, it kind of chills me for a minute. You know, it's like, God, like, who are you talking about? Like, I start looking around the room like, who are you talking about, man? Like, are you talking about me too? So if I feel that way, I can imagine what a white male who, you know, I don't know, he might have a adopted black son. He might have a, you know, Puerto Rican wife or something like that is, is saying like, whoa, wait a minute here, you know, or maybe his wife is white and maybe he's just, you know, never thought like that. And this is just really a naive point for how do we get people to the conversation? 
Because I think that's been the issue. Well, I, th- I think that everybody there, knows uh, there's a problem. Is how do they? How do we get them to the conversation to listen and to participate? Unfortunately, that that is the challenge. How do you make it palatable for uh, people to be willing to engage in this very difficult and um, highly sensitive subject? Uh, unfortunately, it's the language sometimes the vehicle by which we avoid dealing with it. You know, I, I, I also teach a public safety management course, and I, te- I use a text called RACE, the Nervous Area of Government. And basically, one of the main premises in that text is you have to be very intentional and direct when dealing with issues of race, or else it will go we always will find uh, avoidance techniques mm. and mechanisms. And when you say race, people will raise a class argument. That's an avoidance tactic to mm. avoid dealing with that core issue. And until we get to a place where we can do that, we will not make significant progress until, well, as we know, by 2040, whites will no longer be a numerical majority of the population. So inevitably the demographics are going to help influence that as well. But uh, will we as a nation uh, devolve into, into uh, a, 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 another civil war at, <laughs> prior to that happening? Mm. Can we resolve these cultural differences? You know, that's the issue. And we're at a critical time when you look at this present uh, presidential uh, campaign and, and the, um, the, the, the rhetoric that we are hearing, the bigotry and the vitriol and some of the, the language coming out of that is, is just, I mean, I tell my students some of the very same terms and concepts and things that you are hearing today were those bandied about in the political atmosphere during the uh, period of the Civil War. Yes, yes, Some yes, of the very is. same arguments and terms. I, I actually, in a very sad uh, way, I didn't realize that until I, you know, I've been kind of keeping up with this race a little bit, but after I watched the documentary The 13th um, the other night, you know, it changed my, it really made me take a heart. I'm 49 years old. I've been voting. I went to predominantly white schools since fifth grade, all the way through college, you know? Um, and, uh, I've been voting since 18 years old. They actually had us register to vote in, in high school and showed us how to vote. Cause we had mock voting set up so they could, so we'd be very well versed on voting. And, this is probably the first real election in my lifetime where I'm strongly considering not voting and I'm torn because I'm like, you know, black people died so I could have the right to cast my vote. But I'm wondering like if I could bring those black people back from the dead, they probably wouldn't vote for neither one of these candidates either. (laughs) So maybe, maybe I might get a heritage pass. Well, I, I, I have to disagree vehemently there, uh, Brother Sophie. Uh I think those 
blacks that die for you to have the right to vote would clearly vote for one particular candidate over the other because one candidate and the one that's promoting uh, law and order and uh, stop and frisk back to the Jim Crow era. That's, I agree. Okay, they want to take us right back right. to a period where blacks did not have the right to vote or have was just uh, systematically having our votes suppressed. Right. Blacks, as you pointed out, died for the right for us to vote. So I've voted since I was 18, and I have always done it out of a sense of obligation, regardless of the the candidates I, I vote you know my conscience but that's all I have never missed voting in a presidential election and I in any election off year as well and I'm 55 mm. so um, I you know I this argument particularly among the Millennials about sitting this out is a vote for <laughs> again right, I, get, I mean I, no, I totally agree with you but you know, like I said, my, you know, the way I look at it, you know, is you, you've got one candidate. You're right. That's stirring up a whole bunch of stuff. But you got another candidate, you know, and I could say because we I mean, the show does we don't really endorse any candidates. But, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, her husband created the three strikes out. I mean, it, yeah, it, it perpetuated absolutely. it perpetuated this disparate treatment between African-Americans in the in the criminal justice system. And, you know, right. what I what what I want to hear is I want to hear what she's going to do to fix it. I want to hear what she's going to do to now, un, you know, to try to do something to rectify it. I mean, it's, it's clearly uh, a, a, like a human rights violation. What's going on? It's oh, well, it's it's clearly uh, a gross indignation of a culture of families, of people, of black men. Right. Because this same type of system this concept of three strikes you're out it perpetuates itself into the employment industry into your profession you know people deal with you as a professional black male in america it doesn't matter how much money you make they deal with you like okay you got one more time to do this and then we're gonna drop the hammer on you so it's so this goes beyond mm -hmm. black men in prison this is this goes to the way black men are treated in society so I don't want somebody to tell me don't vote for this guy because he appears to be racist or he's saying racist racial things. I want somebody to say vote for me because here's my plan to fix this issue. And I don't hear anyone. I, I, I do understand. Yeah. I, do I, understand I don't hear any of these candidates. Go ahead. You have to look at what policies the other candidate is likely to enact and you know he's he's already compiled the list of his supreme court potential supreme court appointments we have to consider that that will affect our country for the next 40 50 years so our children our grandchildren will have to deal with the ramifications of our vote in this campaign in this election cycle uh but getting to more specifically to your point about criminal justice and to bring the conversation back to 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 the topic that we initially were touching on um, if Donald Trump gets in office let me let me share this with you as you're aware the Cleveland Police Department are under federal consent decree 
Brooklyn Patrolmen's uh, Association, the bargaining unit for the rank and file officers, endorsed Donald Trump for president because of his law and order uh, platform and mm. his calling for stop and frisk. Now, this is the first time this union has ever endorsed a presidential uh, a candidate, a presidential candidate in its 42-year history. Okay. This is in a majority black city that is already under federal consent decree. So the, the question is, why do you think they support endorse Trump? They know that if he's elected, the DOJ, these investigations going on across the country and these various police departments, those are going to be, if not completely repealed, they're going to be defunded, and they're going to cease. These shootings that are going unabated of black males across America, unarmed black citizens dying in police custody and at the hands of police, those investigations aren't going to be going forward. All you have to do is look back to uh, the Bush administration and see how they, this, the, the, the number of uh, DOJ investigations diminished mm. significantly under his administration. So the point is, we will not make any progress in addressing these issues. If anything, there will be retrenchment, and we'll see a continual escalation of these tensions between police and communities of color, as well as the retaliatory violence against police. That has been created by the Cleveland Patrolmen's Association here with that endorsement. It's untenable. I mean, how can you enhance or improve community police relations when you endorse a demagogue a demagogue uh, as the presidential candidate. So it's antithetical to this whole notion of uh, police reform and, and building a better police community relations. So once again, it's a clear choice to be made in this election. If we want to, and mind you, uh, while I'm, I'm a supporter uh, and a supporter and proponent for uh, President Obama, I argue his administration has not done enough relative to mm. criminal justice reform mm. because he trivialized it when the whole Skip Gates issue came about six months into his first administration, and for him to let that uh, devolve into a, beer, a Rose Garden beer summit, that trivialized the whole issue of racial profiling. Now, just think, if he'd have addressed that in a, a, a very substantive way that early on, what we might have, where we might have been uh, relative to these issues today. And now over the past two years, yes, he's become much more active in addressing reforms and uh, uh, giving pardons to people that have been incarcerated under uh, these uh, mandatory minimums and excessive uh, penalties under the war on drugs. And see, the thing is, what really the irony of what's going on relative to the police and the black community, on the other hand, if you look at what's going on with this current 
epidemic, the heroin epidemic. Here in Ohio, Ohio is ground zero for the heroin epidemic. We're arming our police with this anecdote, Narcan, to primarily save white lives. They are not being criminalized the way blacks were during the crack epidemic. I was on uh, NPR and that... Last week, discussing that issue and the contrast between the public uh, policy response to right. both of these these uh, drug epidemics. Then, so, on one hand, we're arming police to save lives of white, primarily white heroin addicts, and on the other hand, the killing and taking of black lives are going unabated with the weapon on their other holster on the other on their other hill. If you're just joining us today on Urban Talk Radio, we are talking about race and policing. And over the phone, I have Dr. Ronnie Dunn. Dr. Ronnie Dunn is a Ph.D. He is an expert in racial profiling. He's also a professor in the state of Ohio. And just remember that Urban Talk Radio is also being simulcast in New Orleans on the New Orleans Talk Radio Network. N-O-T-N, an interactive media website that features 24-hour radio, video streams, article blogs, and information on social living and current news issue. Let me just ask you this as we begin to wrap up our show. You know, mm-hmm. there's people out there wanting some solutions, police departments that want solutions. Um, about three weeks ago, I traveled to Glencoe, Georgia, to the Homeland Security uh, training facility flexi and they had their first conference addressing training around implicit bias and how to engage african-american hispanic latino communities and really trying to look at a different way that they can better service the 90 agencies that they they train and engage with you know and i really give them a lot of credit the, the branch chiefs there for um you know really trying to make an effort you know, everyone's trying to make an effort. People are trying. I mean, what do we tell? What do you, what do you tell people? I mean, let's just say the next president gets in. I mean, what what do you tell that next sitting president in terms of what should they do? The first, let's just say the first president takes over. It's and it's now November. And mm-hmm. yes, what do you tell them? What should they be doing? Well. <laughs> The first, the first uh, thing that I would suggest that the next president does is sign the federal legislation on racial profiling. That has been introduced in every session of Congress since 1998, and yet we still do not have federal legislation on yeah. racial profiling. Do you think the ho- would the House pass it? Would the House pass it, though? Would they pass it? That's the question. Well, that's the thing. We we need it, but the president has to to promote it. I mean, it's been introduced on in every session. So, but if the president does not get behind it and 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 support it, then uh, you know, right. everything else to me that is the fundamental. Uh, element that is is necessary and is missing and everything else can flow from there that will help change this culture that's the ground floor the foundation to beginning to really resolve these 
differences and close this this chasm that exists between the community and the police. Now it's going to take time, and but that would be one of my first recommendations. And I have some very specific uh, ideas on how to do that. Uh, real briefly, here in the city of Cleveland. In my dissertation, I studied racial profiling and I studied traffic enforcement because the most frequent uh, interaction the average citizen has with the police comes in the form of a traffic stop. So I recommended the use of traffic cameras to provide objectivity and equity in the administering of traffic tickets because, first of all, it was found that blacks were not the majority of those violating the traffic laws, yet we were the majority of those being stopped and cited. And that is the most potentially volatile interaction that a police officer has with the citizen comes at a traffic stop. And I'm sure you can attest to that. There's so much uncertainty there. So if we can reduce just the number of interactions, unnecessary interactions between the police and citizens, then we also can diminish these number of uh, instances of deadly use of force to some degree. That's a start. And then there are some other uh, initiatives and ideas that that I would suggest can be implemented. Well, well, Dr. Dunn, thank you certainly for joining us today on the show that they're pumping their fists in the hands. I don't know if that means Black Lives Matter or my time is up <laughs> or both <laughs> or both. Right. <laughs> but um, listen, man, I, I really appreciate well, you coming you. on thank the show, you, doctor. Um, keep doing what you yeah. do. OK. Um, and certainly, you know, we, we look yeah. forward to s- some more writings and publications and stuff coming out from you and to have you back on the show. Uh, for those of you who are out there listening today, if you're just joining us late at the end of our show on Urban Talk Radio, we're talking race and policing. Um, you know, Urban Talk Radio is aired every Wednesday at 9 a.m. You can stream this show live for, by logging on to newhavenindependent.org. Also remember that Urban Talk Radio is also being simulcast on New Orleans Talk Radio Network, NOTN, an interactive media website that features 24-hour radio, video streams, article blogs, and information on social living and current news. Urban Talk Radio, we're trying to bring it to you straight, without commercials, a lot of discussion on topics that you want to hear. Dr. Dunn, thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you for having me, Brother Abdul-Sabah. Yes, sir. And for all of our listeners out there in Connecticut, New Orleans area, thank you for joining Urban Talk Radio. Each one, teach one. Thank you.